It's good to see all of you and be gathered together today. Let me pray uh, before we begin looking at God's word. Father, um, your glory, like that last song, so clearly communicated, your glory seen in the beauty of your son is what we need to encounter here. We do not need the words of another man. We do not need ideas that are human in origin and in nature. We need your spirit to come and to open up the scriptures for all of us, myself especially, as I speak from what I see in the word, and I pray that your glory would shine powerfully from the scriptures into our hearts and into our minds and transform us into the image of Christ Jesus, that we would be conformed from one degree of glory to the next as we look at this man, this God-man, Christ Jesus, and all that he has accomplished. We ask this in the precious name of Jesus alone. Amen. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's how John begins his gospel. That's how this book begins, this biography of Jesus begins with a portrait of the glory of the Son. He is the eternal Word, who was both with God and was God from before creation. Before there was a universe, before there was any kind of thing apart from God, there was God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this Word was both distinct from God, but also God himself. But John tells us right in the first chapter that this Word became flesh and he dwelt among us. So this is Jesus. From the very beginning of the Gospel of John, which we started a long time ago, John has labored, very eager, to paint a clear picture of this this man, Christ. He wants these truths about him from the very beginning to be rooted in us, lest we, along the way, as we read this book, lose our bearings about who he is. And so John reminds us, he doesn't stop painting this picture, he started in the first chapter, he reminds us over and over again throughout this entire biography about who Christ is, and we will see that very clearly as we turn to John 7 today. He is continuing to show us this portrait of Christ. So if you have your Bible, and I hope that you do, please take it, turn with me, to John 7, verse 1. This is where we're going to be spending our time together today. We've been making our way through the the book of John, and we finally come to the the, uh, complete, really, the end of the first third of this book. The book is 21 chapters. As chapters are accounted, uh, we're at the the closing part of the first third of this. but chapter 7 is interesting for a few reasons. It's, it's peculiar in, in a lot of ways that it is the sum of all that has happened before this event. It's almost as though in these series of events that we're going to be looking at, God willing, 
John is taking realities from each of the six chapters beforehand. These 52 verses that we're going to compass resurface themes that we've seen at the very beginning that flood all the way through these last six chapters and permeate them. But what John 7 also does is it makes it a very difficult text for someone to preach. So pray for me, um, because all of these 52 verses are deeply connected and interwoven with each other, such that for me to divide up any of them into sections that are you know, coherent sermons is to potentially imperil the listener. And so right at the beginning, I would commend you, do some homework, go home and read John chapter 7 from front to back. And as we explore each week, go into this and read and reread this chapter. Get an understanding of all that's taking place, how it relates to everything else. Otherwise, you're going to force me to preach a three-hour sermon. And I don't think anybody wants that. Um, so with this uh, understanding now in place, let's begin with verse 1. John writes in the, the first verse of chapter 7, After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand, so his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Then John tells us why they said that. For not even his brothers believed in him. So this is how chapter 7 begins. It's sometime after the events of chapter 6. We don't really understand exactly how long it's been. Chapter 6, we saw, if you recall, the feeding of the 5,000. And then Jesus coming down from the mountain and preaching in Capernaum, telling them that he is the bread of life, that they must come to him, receive him. And we see that after that, according to this, Jesus continued to dwell in Galilee. Capernaum's in Galilee, and so he stayed in this northern part of the country. He did not go to Judea, which is the territory immediately around Jerusalem. Now, why is that? John tells us. He says that the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem wanted Jesus dead. That's what he means when he says Jews there. He's mainly referring to the Jewish leadership. They were seeking to kill him. And if you recall, uh, this should not be, if you remember chapter 5, a surprise to any of us. In chapter 5, Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath. And that event really ignited all of their anger, the anger of the Jewish leadership towards Jesus. Jesus as was uh, the way he operated around them, did not diminish that anger at all, but said things that actually stoked that anger, telling them that their rejection of him was a rejection of God. This is how John puts it in John 5, 18. He, he shows us the motivation for them seeking his death. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, to kill Jesus. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath by healing people, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And this was a problem for them. So they're seeking to kill him. And John tells us that in response, Jesus refused to go into Judea. He stays in Galilee. Um, but John here in the beginning of this chapter is introducing a factor that could change all of that. He says at the very beginning here, that the Feast of Booths was approaching. This is the Feast of Tabernacles. 
tabernacle or booth or tent. It was about to happen, and this is the Jewish feast that celebrates God's faithfulness to the people of Israel as they traveled from Egypt, where they had been enslaved, all the way to the promised land, their future home. God went with them the entire way. He provided for them every step of the way. He pitched his tent in the midst of them, so to speak. And they celebrate this feast. One of the ways that they were instructed to celebrate this is to stay in tents for the full duration of this feast, the week long. And another facet of this feast, and by doing that, they're, they're really bringing to memory, bringing to mind what God did in his faithfulness while they're in the wilderness. But another thing that God told them to do was he called all native-born male Israelites to appear before him. Deuteronomy 16, 16 explains this. Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord, your God, at the place that he will choose, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Booths. This is the one in John 7. They shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the Lord your God that he has given you. So in verse 3, this is the feast that causes this conversation between Jesus and his brothers, his siblings, presumably his biological family, given the context. They tell him, because of this feast, to leave Galilee and to go into Judea. But they don't do this out of obedience to Deuteronomy 16.16. Their impetus here, as was made evident in the text, was for him to show his miracles, to do his signs, his works, so that the disciples in Judea could see it. He's been in Galilee doing these works for however long since chapter 6, And to his brothers, doing these kinds of things in Galilee, you might as well be under a rock. No one's going to see it. It's out in secret. He's in the outskirts. He's in the country. And in their minds, you need to be right at the center, in the city, in the capital, where everyone's going to see. Their explanation's in verse 4. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. They tell him, if you do these things, Jesus, show yourself to this world. Uh, go to the beating heart of our country and show them who you are. I mean, if this is actually what you are doing, make yourself known. But what is shocking about this scene is what follows next. They tell Jesus to go to Judea and to show his works because, get this, they did not believe in him. That's their motivation. John says, for not even his brothers believed in him. Now, John doesn't tell us if they'd ever seen Jesus do uh, these signs or not. He, he, he doesn't say whether, whether or not they had actually been present when he had been doing these works. I think the reason he doesn't say that here is because John doesn't think it's important. Whether they'd seen these works or not actually doesn't matter given their response. Many people had seen Jesus' signs. They'd seen him do miracles, and they still walked away not believing in him. I mean, we saw it in chapter 2, we saw it in chapter 5, and most recently we saw it in chapter 6. He creates meals for 5,000 human beings, at least. And at the end of the chapter, they peace out. They're gone. They don't want anything to do with them. So, 
Seeing in the book of John is not necessarily believing in Jesus in a saving way. Uh, but what's crazy about this, what's insane about this, is that they're his brothers. They're his brothers. They've seen him every single day of their life. They knew what kind of life he lived. They knew how he spoke. They knew that, you know, that he was different, that there was something different about him. And so whether they heard these signs from a you know, third party or whether they had seen them with their very eyes, his brothers, of all people, had evidence of Jesus's life that affirmed he was who he said he was. They seen him. And yet John says they actually didn't believe. You can tell he's stressing it for not even his brothers believed in him. And to be clear about believing, just so we're on the same page, believing here isn't simply affirming that Jesus can do miracles. Everyone in the book of John affirms that Jesus can do miracles, even his enemies. There's no question about it. They see it. They don't have any doubt that he can do miracles. Believing in the way that John uses it here is trusting in Christ as the all-sufficient Savior that he really is. You can agree with what he did physically and not love him, not trust him, not treasure him. John uses the word for here in verse 5, which tells us that their unbelief is the ground. It's the very reason they're telling him to go to the feast, which, I mean, that's strange. Why would their unbelief drive them to try to get him to go to the feast? I think we just need to process it a little bit. They're saying, if you do these things, Jesus, make yourself known. They're telling him to use his works, these miracles, to seek the attention and praise of the masses. This isn't an issue where they disbelieved his ability to cast out a demon or his ability to heal somebody. No, they knew that was real. What they didn't believe or understand was that these signs all existed to point to their need for him as, as the Savior, not just as a miracle worker. And thinking, uh, presumably, that Jesus had the same impulses and desires as them, that he was driven by the same self-serving pursuits, they just assumed you want to accumulate a following for yourself through the works you do. So go do them in Jerusalem. But Jesus' response here is very sobering. Verse 6, Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. Now, what's amazing about this response is that Jesus is actually elaborating on his motivation, the reason why he hasn't been going to Judea. It's not because he's scared. He's not scared, as you will see shortly. It's not because he doesn't want to die. No, he knows he's going to die. That's made evident in this text as well. And it's not because the crowd in Galilee is any easier He's not going, he says, because it's not his time. That's what he says here. My time has not yet fully come. But your time, he tells his brothers, is always here. So what does he mean by this? What is this time that he's talking about? Well, this concept, if you recall, surfaced, I mean, way early in this book, back in chapter 2, when Jesus was at the wedding feast at Cana. Remember that scene where his mother 
seeing that the bridegroom is struggling with the provision of wine, says to him, do something about this, Jesus. And Jesus turns to her and says, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. And even later, God willing, as we're going through the book of, of or the, through the chapter of uh, John 7, we're going to see this again in verse 30, where uh, John tells us that certain people were seeking to arrest Jesus. They're about to lay hands on him. But John says, no one laid a hand on him. Why, John? Because his hour had not yet come. It happens in chapter 8. This is a recurring theme in the book of John. And this is a critical question, though. So what is his time? What is this hour that John keeps on referring to? Well, one thing that clarifies this for us in the immediate context is that his brothers tell, he tells his brothers in verse 6, your time is always here. And so at some level, he's making a distinction between his brother's time and his own time. Whatever his time might mean to his brothers or to anybody else here, Jesus frames this distinction by, by describing how the world responds to them and how the world responds to him. He says, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. So this is the difference between Jesus and his brothers. He says, the world loves you, the world hates me. It's your time now, it's not my time yet. And the reason the world hates him is not surprising once he reveals it. He tells them the truth about themselves. He tells them that their works are evil. So their hatred is not irrational. It's an emotional response to an accusation in Jesus. Their hatred in, at a level makes some sense. If you're telling people their works are evil, do not expect them to immediately become your friend. Uh, and don't expect to gain a large following. I mean, this is Jesus' whole point to his brothers who are saying, you need to bring people in. You need to add people to your numbers. Jesus, when he came into this world, did not come into this world to ingratiate himself to its people and garner a following by affirming all that they were doing and all that they were. That's not what he came in the world to do. And he didn't come in the world to be like his brothers who wanted him to wheel and deal like a magician so that he could gather a number of people with him. No, Jesus came in the world for a very specific reason. John 3.19 actually explains the reality of Jesus coming into the world and being a testimony against the world for its evil deeds. Listen to this. Jesus says in John 3.19, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. So Jesus came into the world as light. This is a pervasive theme in the book of John. We may look at it in the coming weeks. His very existence, his very existence is a testimony against the world, that its works are evil. His words, his actions, his deeds his miracles, all of everything about him is a testimony against this world that its works are evil. And so while his brothers, who are part of the world that he's speaking about, should go to the feast, Jesus says, right now, I'm not going to the feast. He refuses to go right now. My time has not yet come, he says. And what he means by time will become 
clearer as this story progresses. So let's continue. Verse 9. After saying this, he, Jesus, remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. So Jesus does go to the feast after all. And I think the immediate question we would have after reading this text is, why did he tell his brothers what he told them? Well, he may have meant, and the Greek allows for this, uh, he may have meant not right now. He may have meant not yet. He may have meant, I'm not going with you. He may have simply meant not going today. Um, all of those are acceptable, and all of those are, are plausible. In fact, they, they may all be right to some degree. But more than likely, he meant, I will not go up to the feast in the same way that you're going up to the feast. Which makes a lot of sense, given what he's already told them. And it makes a lot of sense, given verse 10 here. It says that he did not go up to Judea publicly, but instead went privately. They wanted him to go make a name for himself. He wanted to stay out of the spotlight. So this, this not going up to the feast didn't mean he was never going to go up to the feast. It simply meant, and that would have been disobedience to the law of Moses. Deuteronomy 16 called him to do that. It simply meant here that he wasn't going to go up on their terms. That's not how he's going to do this. He's going to do it privately. He's going to do it discreetly, such that when he gets there, we can see this in the text, the Jewish leaders are looking for him. They can't find him. And in verse 12, we get a sense that the leaders are not the only ones looking for him. The common people of Judea were muttering about him under their breath. Some people were saying that he's good. Some people were saying that he's bad. And yet John says here, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. I think we need to reflect on that a little bit. The kind of fear that is attached to speaking Jesus publicly was enough to silence even those who didn't like him. Even those who disagreed with him would not take his name on their mouth in public because of this fear. And so this is real. This is a real climate, environment of fear. Jesus's, the threat that was on Jesus' life was real as he's going up into Judea such that people won't even say his name or even talk about him lest they be accused of associating with him by some misunderstanding. And yet here Jesus is going right into the heart of all of it. And he's not going for his own glory. As we'll see and as we've seen a little bit already, he's doing it humbly and quietly. Think about this. This is not the way that I would have gone. This is probably not the way that you would have gone either. He's doing it in a way that no one else would have. Jesus does not play by our rules. His life, his actions, his behavior, off the grid. And that is a major theme, probably the greatest theme of this entire chapter. He is not a man who is driven by either fear of man or driven by a desire for vainglory. That's not who he is. And we find that very clearly presented in the next scene. Verse 14 continues. 
About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. So this statement is what Jesus does in response to a question that they didn't even ask him. <laughs> Which he does all the time. He's answering questions that, that they're thinking. They're confused. They're verbalizing their confusion. How in the world does this man without any formal training, without any formal education, teach the way he does. And in their confusion, he answers them. Now, before we get to his answer, we need to notice, and maybe you did notice this, John does not record Jesus doing any signs or miracles here as he goes into Judea. We don't know for sure. All that he writes is that he began to teach in the temple. If he wanted to draw a crowd and create followers through a miracle or a sign, we would probably see it here. This is what his brothers wanted. All he would need to do is heal a man, and there would be a crowd. We've seen it happen before, even in this gospel. And he's been doing these miracles throughout much of his ministry, but John mentions none of them here in this section of the text. Jesus is clearly not seeking to draw a crowd because of a miracle. He's not looking for an artificial following. But that doesn't mean that he's silent. Halfway through the feast, he begins to teach, which is obedience to the law of Moses. Deuteronomy 16, remember what it said, during the Feast of Booths, all Jewish men shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the Lord that your God, that he has given you. So this is Jesus's obedience. Jesus is giving what the Father has given him to say. And he does this in a context where, think about this, people are scared to even say his name. So this whole scene is confusing to the same Jewish leaders who, who've been seeking him to arrest him and to kill him because he's not talking like an uneducated Galilean carpenter or even like a run-of-the-mill run of rabbi, he is talking like someone who, who actually knows firsthand what he's saying. Like he's not talking about somebody who read this in a book. He's teaching with authority. And Jesus clarifies here, he, he, he makes it clear, it is not my authority that I'm teaching with. My teaching is not my own. Just something that I came up with or something I found in a book. That's not what happened here. Instead, my teaching is from the one who sent me, namely, my Father, God himself. Jesus is very unambiguous here. He's already laid the foundation multiple times. They think he's making himself equal with God. He says, my teaching is from the one who sent me. It's from God himself. I don't take any credit for my teaching. It's from him. But with this response, Jesus is, is pressing against the very thing that caused these men to want him dead in the first place. He's pressing against their sensitive nerve that came up in chapter 5, and they're striking at the very heart of why they want to kill him. Which, 
reveals something about Jesus. I mean, this has been kind of evident so far, but this is part of John's emerging portrait of Christ. Jesus does not fear man. That doesn't mean that he didn't feel fear rise up in him. That just means he did not allow it to dictate his obedience to God. Fear of man did not dominate him because his obedience, his allegiance, his loyalty was to his father alone. These men want him dead. I mean, they've created a climate of fear that has effectively silenced all of Judea. And here's Jesus looking them straight in the face and saying, my teaching is not mine. It comes from the living God, my father. And then he says, something shocking, uh, which isn't shocking, I guess. This is Jesus. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. Now, that is a volatile thing to say. Just grapple with it for a moment. He's effectively saying, how you receive my words is an indicator of whether or not your will is to do God's will. Your own conformity to God's will will determine whether you see that this is actually from God or whether I'm speaking from my own authority, which is how you all speak. Now, that's a, that's a bold claim for him to make. If your will is to do God's will, if your heart has been given over to God's purpose, then you'll know that what I'm saying is from God. But if it's not, you won't know and you will forever be in the dark about what I'm saying. And then Jesus here, it seems, recognizes the same problem that he saw in his brothers at the beginning of the chapter because of the way he addresses it here. He engages the relationship between authority and glory. We don't use those words very often, but they're weighty words, and he connects them directly. Remember, his, brother, his brothers wanted him to make a name for himself. They wanted him to go out, do these works, gather people, use your miracles to draw attention to you. But Jesus tells us here, right here in this text to the Jewish leaders, what's wrong with that. Listen to his, uh, what he says in verse 18. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. So think about that for a moment. There is a relationship between authority, one's own authority, and glory, the pursuit of glory. And, and, and there's, there, inside of that relationship is the problem. To speak from one's own authority is to seek one's own glory. And Jesus, in this point that he's making here, isn't just for the people immediately around him or for his brothers. This is actually a universal statement. He's talking about everyone here. You remember in John 5, the way the, the discussion ended was with Jesus declaring what is universally broken in every sinful heart. Anyone who ultimately rejects Jesus, the reason they reject him is for this purpose. John 5, he asked the Jewish leaders, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? That's the main problem with your unbelief. It's not about evidence. It's not about accruing facts. The main problem with your unbelief is that you seek glory from each other and not from the living God. 
And this statement isn't just an indictment of first century Jewish leaders. This statement is an indictment of all people at all time in history. In the heart of fallen man, there is a native desire to reject the glory that comes from God and to establish and seek and embrace our own glory. This is the ultimate root at the bottom of any unbelief. It is a subconscious or conscious dethroning of the authority of God for our own authority, all of it done in pursuit of our own glory instead of seeking the glory he freely offers us, the glory that comes from God. That's the essence of all unbelief in our world. Doesn't matter where you grew up, doesn't matter what part of the planet you're on, this is true of every fallen human heart. Every sin or every unbelief that we might, every action of that, that proceeds from unbelief, all of those things are a fundamental rejection of God's worth and majesty in a defiant exaltation of our own authority. We're right, you're wrong, stay out of our business. It may not feel like that's what people are saying, but that's the default position of the human heart, and that's the predominant view across the world. Stay out of our lives, God. We reject your glory and establish our own authority. But praise be to God, Jesus isn't like us. Jesus is seeking the glory of the one who sent him. Verse 18 tells us why this is so critical. Jesus says, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. This is an extraordinary statement for Jesus to make at many levels. He is saying that his truthfulness, the truthfulness that he is communicating, is anchored to the fact that he seeks the glory of his Father. That's where his truth originates from. That's why he's true. That's why in him there is no falsehood. In fact, in John 14, he's going to say something very clear. I am the truth, period. I am the sum of all truth. I'm the embodiment of truth, which is a fascinating claim because of what it reveals, all of what he's saying here in John 7, of what it reveals of the nature of truth. It tells us that truth, real, absolute, objective truth, is only found in its correspondence with the glory of God. That's where it's found. God's glory, his worth, his beauty, is the plumb line of all truth. It's the baseline. So real truthfulness of anything in this world actually has very little, sorry to say, Very little to do with the arbitrary facts that people spout off or the ideas that they may have in their head about basic understanding of this world. Real objective truth, according to Jesus, has very little to do with that and everything to do with the glory of God, the centrality of God's glory. Because the truthfulness of anything, whatever it might be, whatever statement it might be, is only found in its conformity to the reality and the glory of the living God And Jesus, listen to me, spent every single millisecond of his life pursuing that glory, seeking that glory, embracing that glory, 
And therefore, he was able to look unabashedly into the faces of his disciples and say, I am the truth. In me, there is no falsehood. So before we go any further um, into John 7, I want to stop here. I know I said it was risky to stop, but I'm not preaching three hours today. Um, And I want to press a little bit into the reality that we're seeing here. Because it's here that we find the answer to the question, why did Jesus say, or what did he mean when he said, my time has not yet fully come? Remember, he told his brothers at the very beginning that their time is always here. I think we can process what he meant there just based on how his encounter with the Jewish leaders went. There is always a time in this present world for a man to seek his own glory which is exactly what his brothers wanted to do. You have plenty of time for that. This is, your, this is your life. That's what you're doing right now in the present age. But Jesus refused to do that. He goes to the Feast of Booths privately, and then when he teaches, he doesn't teach from his own authority. He teaches from the authority of his Father. He, even his own teaching, the greatest teacher on the planet ever, even in his own teaching, he takes no credit for it. He gives all glory to God. So Jesus is embodying, he is showing the reality, the truth that defines his life right in the middle of the Feast of Booths, which is peculiar because this word booth is skenoo in the Greek, and it's the same word that John uses in chapter 1, verse 14, when he says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. The word dwelt is tabernacle, to to pitch your tent next to, to be around, to live near, to dwell near. And it's the same word that is used for feast of booths. Jesus at this feast is embodying the truth that he ultimately came to show and do and accomplish, the hour that he was headed toward. And as we move through the Gospel of John, we will see finally when that hour shows up in John 12. And Jesus says, before his disciples, the hour has come. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And that hour is him dying on the cross. We, we know that it's him dying on the cross, not only because it comes shortly after that, but because of what he says immediately after this or verses after this. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. And then he says something very important. Father, Glorify your name. Glorify your name. The hour is about the glory of the Father. Everything in Jesus' life led to this hour, to this very moment. This is what he was talking about with his brothers. This is what he was speaking about with his mom back in chapter 2. His time had finally come in John 12. And yet even here, moments before he is, get this, stripped naked, beaten and bloodied, then penned to a Roman cross with iron spikes, 
right before, as he, as, he, as he stares out and surveys an ocean of suffering, justice for our sins, as he's doing that, he is still seeking the Father's glory, unwaveringly. He refuses to let go of that. That's his life. And that is the point of the cross. The cross is the culmination of Christ's pursuit of the glory of his Father, where he pays with his own blood for thousands and thousands of years of our own dishonoring of his Father's glory. And in paying for the dishonoring that's happened to his Father, he dethrones sin that has dominated our lives since we first breathed. And we find in the scriptures that Christ is ultimately glorified in this remarkably humbling act. Philippians 2, Paul says this best in Philippians 2. Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he was the eternal word, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of his servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, listen to this, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is why he came to dwell among us. This is why he came to tabernacle with us, to, to pitch his tent near ours so that he could pursue his Father's glory by redeeming a people who had been lost in the middle of their own pursuit of their own glory. In John 7, Jesus is giving us a glimpse, just a brief glimpse in his conversation here about what his hour, what his time would look like, how it would play out. He shows us just a, a glimpse of his unwavering pursuit of his Father's glory at the Feast of Booths so we know why he came. He came not to seek his own glory, but to seek the glory of his Father. And he would do that all the way to the cross. And there, on the cross, I mean, when we think about him embodying truth and in him being no falsehood, think about this. The cross is the clearest picture that the works of the world are evil. Why would you need a savior to die if we were good enough, if we had already done what we needed to, or we were capable of lifting ourselves up? The cross tells us we need a savior. Otherwise, God wouldn't have had to send his son to die for us. Paul tells us here in Philippians 2 that because of the cross, God has exalted Jesus and made him Lord of every single molecule in the created order. There is nothing over which Christ does not proclaim loudly and with great truthfulness that he is Lord. He is Lord of all. Every knee will bow one day. Every tongue will confess one day. It may not feel like that in this world right now, but it's going to happen. Every human being, every creature in the heavens 
will lay down before him the one who emptied himself of his divine privilege and died for his people. And now Paul says he has all authority. He has all authority. And he has all authority to the glory of God the Father. Even in Christ's exaltation at the top of all things, he is honoring his Father. He is seeking his Father's glory. So who is this that John 7 is holding out to us? What kind of man is this? So unlike us in every way. And yet he enters into our brokenness, comes to dwell among us, and ultimately die for us. I mean, for people, just reflect a little bit. This is what I did this week. Reflect a little bit about how you're not like this. He died for people who are fixated on the exaltation of their own authority. Sound familiar? Sounds familiar to me. And almost a rabid pursuit of their own glory. That's who he came for. We know this is true of ourselves. We can see into our hearts. Guess what? Jesus could as well. He did not die for sins he did not know about. Think about that for a second. He didn't look back from the cross and say, well, I didn't know that he'd done that. I would not have done it then. That never happened. He knew it and he still went. He wasn't blind to the sin that he would have to pay for and yet he still goes to the cross. Who is this Christ that John is laboring to show us? This, this eternal word, infinitely worthy, infinitely glorious, humbling himself to the point of, of death so that if we just trust him, if we just believe in him, if we turn from our sin to him and say, I want you, I want you, then everything that he purchased on that cross becomes ours. He becomes ours forever. And we're his. This is Jesus in John 7. And he is unlike all others. Let's pray. Father God, this is too great for us to even really compass with our minds. And we are grasping at the very limits of our ability to understand and comprehend. And we need you. Help us to, to understand the supremacy of Christ in his humility in his purity, in his allegiance to the glory of his Father. Help us to feel the weight of that, Father, with the appropriate magnitude. Don't allow us to get swallowed up by trivial things. So many things in our lives can just eat away the time without any reflection on the great realities that hang across the face of eternity. And we need to taste those. We need to know what it's going to be like on the other side. Thank you for what you did, Jesus. Thank you for your fearlessness in taking the cross for us. Thank you for your submission and humility to the Father, clothing yourself with humanity, penetrating 
the depths of our brokenness and our sin and our rebellion and taking a people for yourself from every tribe, tongue, and nation in the world and making them into a bride. Thank you for this, Christ. We love you. We adore you. We long for you. In the name of Jesus, amen.